0: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Some say she came from Alalak, the ancient city on the Amuk River in the shadow of the Amonis Mountains. Or at least that's where she first came to be known. Her background before that is more of a mystery. It may have been Hurrian or Amorite or even more ancient, a primordial goddess of northern Syria already present in the earliest texts of those who inhabited the region. And if her first association with a fixed location happened to be in Alalak, she felt no need to keep the relationship exclusive. By the mid-17th century BC, when Alalok was first destroyed by the Hittite king Hattusili I, the goddess had established herself in two adjacent regions. The first, to the north, was the Hurrian kingdom of Kizuwadna. The second, more relevant to our story, was an Amorite or possibly Hurrian kingdom along the Euphrates at Carchemish. Whatever route the process took, the goddess Kubaba soon became the city's patron deity, a role she held all down through the following centuries. Unfortunately for a major goddess of a major city— we don't know much about Kubaba's nature, her relationship to other deities, or what her worship consisted of. We can infer that she was considered benevolent and wise, which is always nice. But attempts to link Kubaba to the Anatolian Kibeli, and thereby make her a mother goddess rely on some pretty thin evidence. Still, whatever else she was, she was important to Carchemish, which is why when Suhi took control of the city in the mid-11th century BC, he appointed one of his sons to be her priest. By dropping the traditional title of great king in favor of ruler of Carchemish, we know that Suhi saw his role as different from that of his predecessor's. But even if he was abandoning the Hittite Empire, he was hardly surrendering power. At the very least, he ruled an important, wealthy, fortified city sited along the Euphrates, one that hosted one of the region's more formidable armies. Though it's unclear how much of Carchemish's wealth, defenses, and military assets had survived both the Assyrian attack of Asher Belkala and the conflict that had brought Suhi to power. Still, it's probably safe to assume that Suhi retained control over numerous cities, towns, and villages, both along the Euphrates and possibly some distance to the south and west. The more significant shift was felt in the territories beyond. A gradual reorientation from a Hittite great king to the local figure— a governor, administrator, general, or priest, responsible for their day-to-day lives. This was the shift that would gradually lead to Hittite decentralization and the germination of small neo-Hittite city-states alongside those being formed by the Arameans. In fact, the political scene in northern Syria would start resembling early Mesopotamia, with rival city-states jockeying for power and only occasionally joining forces to oppose a common enemy. If the political scene was early Bronze Age, it was likely still navigated by a microcosm of late Bronze Age diplomacy—letters, gifts, and marriage alliances backed up by military force. As a powerful northern Syrian king, Suhi likely did his best to keep in touch with the major players, keep informed of major events, and try to distinguish opportunities and threats at some kind of reasonable distance. And it's a useful exercise to take a seat on Suhi's throne and consider what he may have known of the figures, peoples, and states arrayed around his kingdom. We're already well acquainted with the Assyrians, and we've also talked about their northern antagonists, the Nairi and the Mushki. In time, both groups had staked powerful claims to control over Near Eastern territory. For the Nairi, it would be as the eventually unified Armenian kingdom of Urartu, while for the Mushki, It'd be through joining with some recent immigrants, the Thraco-Phrygians, to dominate western Anatolia. But in the mid-11th century BC, both peoples remained relatively weak and divided. North of Carchemish along the Euphrates was the city of Malachia. Around the same time that Suhi took control of Carchemish, a new and independent dynasty may have also come to power in Malachia. Its first king, Taras, used the titles of hero and country lord. According to Bryce, the inscription on a stele erected by the king claimed substantial extension to the frontiers of his kingdom and the riverlands which they incorporated, along with an extensive city-building and resettlement program. If Suhi did rule in parallel with Teras, he likely saw his northern neighbor as a man worth keeping an eye on. Southwest of Malachia and northwest of Karkemish sat another important city— Maros, in the region of Gergum. We highlighted Gergum earlier as the place where the last official Hittite great king, Supaluliuma II, may have relocated after abandoning Hattusas. But the sad fact is that we know virtually nothing about the city over the whole next century and a half. Most of what we can say is negative. There's no record of Supaluliuma or any of his descendants challenging the kings of Carchemish for power, and Gurgum hadn't been singled out as a target of Tiglath-Pileser, both of which suggest a fairly rapid decline in prestige, wealth, power, or possibly all three. Bryce also notes that the region of Gurgum has never really been systematically excavated, So some answers may still lie there, waiting to be uncovered. Northwest of Gergum, you enter the former Hittite lower land, the territory between the Taurus Mountains and the Hollis River. According to Bryce, there's nothing in the material record to indicate that the region was significantly affected by the upheavals at the end of the Late Bronze Age, or by the collapse of the Hittite Empire. The population and territory remained essentially Luwian, and in the absence of any central authority, may have given rise to some of the earliest Neo-Hittite states. It's also possible, though unrecorded, that northern Syrian kings like Suhi and Taras may have maintained communication and trade links with the region. South from the lower land approaching the coast, you'd enter the territory of Tarhuntasa, founded by the Hittite great king Muatali II. In a stark contrast to the lower land, Tarhuntasa had been largely obliterated by the attacks of coastal raiders. While the population remained largely Luwian, there's no evidence that the region retained any type of organized polity. We do know that the region's name, once it began to reappear, had changed from Tarhuntasa to Helaku, the origin of the classical name for the region, Cilicia. And, by the way, once all these kingdoms and territories start settling back down, I'll definitely be posting a new regional map to help keep everything straight. East of Tarhuntasa, along the coast, was the Hittite territory of Kizuwadna, the place I mentioned earlier as one of the homes of the Syrian goddess Kubaba. This territory met a more interesting and complex fate than its thoroughly ravaged neighbor. We know that the inland portion of Kizuwadna— retained enough of its Luwian population and culture that the place name Kizawadna endured for centuries. This portion can essentially be grouped with the lower land territories mentioned earlier. But the coastal portion of Kizawadna was a bit of a different story. This region's name, once it began to reappear, was a little more multiple-choice. It was mainly known as Quay, but it was also known as Adanawa, which is fun because the major Turkish city of Adana is still located there. And most interestingly, it was also called Hiyawa. And yes, that's Hiyawa as in Ahiawa, as in Achaeans, as in the Mycenaean Greeks. As Beckman et al. note in their book The Ahiyawa Letters, the name Hiyawa may reflect a migration of populations of Mycenaean origin from western Anatolia or the Aegean world to Cilicia at the beginning of the Iron Age. An interesting piece of related evidence comes from a much later monument, a statue base in the form of a chariot pulled by a pair of bulls recovered near modern Adana. The monument holds a bilingual inscription in Luwian hieroglyphs and Phoenician characters made by a later king of Kwe named Awariku. In it, he calls himself Descendant of Mukasa, Hiawan King, Servant of the Storm God, and boasts that he extended the territory of the city of Hiawa, and made prosper the Hiawan Plain, through the help of the storm god and my paternal gods. I added horse to horse. I added army to army. Beckman and colleagues pulled two interesting related strings. Along with neighboring Halaku, Kwe or Hiawa would also be considered part of classical Cilicia. And the authors highlight the claim by the Greek historian Herodotus that the Cilicians were originally known as Hypachaeans, or subachaeans. They also note the name of the earlier king mentioned in the inscription, Mukasa, is rendered as MPS in Phoenician characters. This could possibly tie him to the legendary Greek seer Mopsus, whose associated with the foundation of a number of cities in southern Anatolia. It's a lot to process, but the upshot is that the population of coastal Kizawadna now likely included Mycenaean Greeks, who, at some point over the next few centuries, would become politically dominant. Following the southward curve of the Levantine coast, and approaching the mouth of the Orontes River, you enter the region of the Amuk plain once dominated by the city of Alalak, which we mentioned earlier as the possible birthplace of the Syrian goddess Kubaba. Inland, around halfway between the coast and the city of Carchemish, was the major city of Aleppo. Both Alalak and Aleppo suffered devastation at the hands of the sea peoples. And while aleppo once hosted a Hittite viceroy, that line had either perished in the city's defense or fled to nearby Carchemish. What filled the vacuum at the time of our story? That's another interesting discussion. Bryce notes that in 2003, excavations conducted at the Aleppo Citadel Mound, specifically in the city's temple of the storm god Haddad, Unearthed two well-preserved statues, one of the storm god and another of a king. The king's statue was inscribed with a text in Luwian hieroglyphics, saying, King Tita am I, Palestinian king. For my lord, the Halabian storm god, I honored the image. Other inscriptions along the Orontes and in the Amuk plain are also associated with this same king, Taita, and also use the term Palestinian. And since the Palestinians, Peleset, or Philistines are based way down the coast near the Egyptian border, this all makes for a bit of a mystery. Whether Titus inscriptions truly document a Philistine presence in northern coastal Syria is a question yet to be answered. It's also worth recalling that, based on their material culture, we know that the Philistines were likely Mycenaean Greeks, just like the nearby Hiawans of Quay, all of which points toward a significant role for Mycenaean remnants in early Iron Age Syria. Whatever his origins, Titus' kingdom was likely based in Aleppo and likely existed during the 11th century BC, basically the time of our story. Bryce also notes that, judging by the spread of his inscriptions, Titus' land was a relatively extensive one, reaching from at least Aleppo in the northeast down into the Orontes Valley and probably to the Mediterranean coast. Even more than the aggressive expansion of Taras of Malachia, Taita may have represented a potential threat to the new King Suhi of Carchemish. Moving south along the Orontes, we encounter the riverine cities of Hamath, Katna, and Kadesh, site of the legendary chariot battle between Mu'atali II and Ramesses II and, between the Orontes and the coast, the former territory of Amuru. This was another area of deep devastation, thoroughly ravaged by the Sea Peoples, likely in conjunction with local outlaw bands called Habiru. We know virtually nothing about the peoples and polities that defined the region during the middle 11th century BC. We do know that once kingdoms started nucleating out, at places like Hamath and Luash, they were a mix of Neo Hittite and Aramaean. Approaching the headwaters of the Orontes in the Baccha Valley and moving toward the coast, you'd encounter something quite remarkable a huge, ancient, prosperous city untouched by the Bronze Age collapse with a harbor full of ships veritably bursting with goods for regional trade. This was the famous Canaanite city of Byblos. Back in the early 2nd millennium BC, the city had first risen to notoriety as a virtual colony of Middle Kingdom Egypt. And all throughout the Late Bronze Age, the ties between Byblos and Egypt had remained close. In fact, one Byblos governor, Ribhada, drove Akhenaten out of his mind with a barrage of cuneiform letters. But following the death of Ramesses III, Egypt had become more inward-looking, which freed up Byblos and a string of sister cities along the coast, including Berytus, Sidon, and Tyre, to chart a more independent path. As Bryce notes, the populations of these cities never had any form of common identity, political or otherwise, beyond a broad ethnocultural one. If they used any generic name at all to refer to themselves, they would probably have called themselves Canaanites. But they'd eventually become much better known by a name bestowed on them by the Greeks, Phoenician. The name came from the Greek term phoenix, meaning crimson, red, or purple, and likely derived from the valuable purple dye they extracted from the local murex shellfish. In the middle 11th century B.C., the king of Byblos may have been a figure named Zakar Baal. Our source for this information is a very famous Egyptian account known as the Report of Wenamun. Right off the bat, I need to mention that the historicity of the entire account is very much open to question. But it's such an interesting tale, and touches on so many peoples and places relevant to our current story, that it's just way too good to pass up. In order to put the report in context, we need to catch up on events in Egypt since the death of Ramesses III, As I briefly mentioned a few episodes back, there are three things that characterize the next eight pharaohs. They were likely related to Ramesses III, most had relatively short reigns, and they all took the throne name Ramesses. Ramesses IV is mainly known for executing the perpetrators of his father's murder, though he also exploited mines and quarries for a vigorous building program. It was during the reign of his son and successor, Ramesses V, that two trends became more prominent—repeated invasions by Libyans from the west, and the increasing power and independence of the priesthood of Amun at Thebes. Ramesses V was succeeded by his uncle, Ramesses VI, who successfully repulsed the Libyan raids. But his focus on doing so entailed a significant cost, because it's during his reign that Egypt lost control of its last few Canaanite strongholds, most notably the port city of Jaffa, and also abandoned its hold on the Sinai Peninsula. The kingdom's frontiers were basically rolled back to a fortified line connecting the eastern Nile Delta and the Red Sea. For the whole next century, between this time and the time of our story, Egyptian influence in Syria was entirely absent, which is highly relevant in understanding the context of the report of Wen Amun. The next few pharaohs, including the long-reigning Ramesses IX, were little more than placeholders, presiding over a series of deepening economic crises. By the end of the reign of Ramesses X, disorders in the kingdom were ratcheting up, with renewed Libyan attacks, the virtual independence of the Theban priesthood, and a third new power center coalescing under the viceroys of Cush to the south. Next episode, we'll touch on the reign of the very last ruler of the Egyptian new kingdom, the pharaoh Ramesses XI. We'll cover the transition to the new 21st dynasty and what's known as the Third Intermediate Period. And we'll finally get on board the damn boat, join the Egyptian emissary Wen Amun, and get an answer to the age-old question, do I really have to pay for this wood? All this next time on The Ancient World. (laughs)